All right, friends, today we start a new series. We titled it Jesus Speaks, and it's a sermon on a subject that some of us are fairly familiar with, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. But I'm going to ask us today to begin to listen to the words of Jesus through a new lens, through new eyes. Um, t- today, uh, as, as we consider this topic, I, I was reminded of uh, some of the uh, conferences and things I've been to. Have you ever been really excited to hear a speaker or a uh, maybe a concert or something like that? And you went with all sorts of expectation, and then you sat there thinking, "This is not what I hoped for." Have, have you been in that? It, it, I'm sure we all have in in some form or fashion. You might be having that experience right this very moment. I get it. You know, that's okay. It happens to all of us, right? This is a common feeling. Um, It turns out the exact same thing happened in Jesus' life over and over again. Uh, Jesus continually turned the common wisdom of the day on its head. He continued, he continually challenged the thoughts and uh, the ways of being that the people came. And so they came with expectations. And so often, they found themselves confused or frustrated or concerned by the things that Jesus said. Jesus speaks honestly. Jesus speaks radically. Jesus speaks directly into the culture, both of the first century and I believe as we explore today into the 21st century as well. So as we dive in um, to the Sermon on the Mount, um, I, I want to uh, ask us to consider it as a radical and profound religious teaching. Often familiarity tames our perception of the radical. Like often familiarity blinds us to uh, the extreme and, 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 the, uh, and the major things that are happening around us. Another word for it might be um, desensitized. Like many of us that like action movies or like a good thriller or something like that, um, become desensitized to the point that we never think about the loss of life or the gore, you know, that, that we're seeing right in front of us. We become desensitized to things that are major. And I fear quite often with scripture, with uh, topics that we're familiar with, that familiarity blinds us to the radical, to the extreme, to the wild things that are taking place in front of us. So I invite us today to consider with a new light, um, Campbell, he's um, a professor and a pastor. He says this of the Sermon on the Mount. He says, the Sermon on the Mount offers a vision of an alternative world that shocks us out of our common sense, take for granted assumptions so that we might see the world differently and possibly glimpse the new creation that has come in Jesus himself. He says this is radical stuff. It's of another world, yet it's of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God that is coming down to earth. The kingdom of God that is transforming the ways we live and operate. So listen, let it be radical. Let questions be arisen in our minds as we read it. And then let's look for the radical yet beautiful teaching that Jesus has about the kingdom that's coming. Let's begin Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Jesus finds himself once again surrounded by people. If we look back into chapter 4, we would have seen that Jesus was, um, was healing people of all sorts of ailments, driving out demons, crowds were flocking to him, and he finds himself in the region of Galilee, outside of the town in a remote area in Israel, and he finds himself again surrounded by people. And Jesus was a, a newer rabbi at this point. He had begun calling disciples to, to himself to follow him, to learn from him, uh, to, to know what he knew and to do what he does. He invited these 12 men saying, come, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. I'll, I'll change your world and your life. And so in the role of a rabbi, he would play many roles in the synagogues. He would speak when he was in a town. But in this case, Jesus plays a traditional role of a, sabbi, of a rabbi by sitting down and beginning to teach while people stand around him. Can you imagine in that moment uh, being one of those standing over the shoulder of Jesus as he sat in a peaceful, gentle posture and began to speak to you, to the crowd? And I don't know if you're anything like me, but many of us are familiar with the Beatitudes, as they're often titled in our Bible, about the blessings that come from God, the blessings of his kingdom um, on, on, on different groups of people. And I don't know if you've ever been just a little bit confounded by them. Like, what is he really getting at? What is he really trying to say? Maybe there was a time when you were a kid and you pronounced the word blessed are the poor in spirit, but your mind didn't connect that with the word blessed, right? And in time, we come to realize, oh, it's speaking of blessings. But I think even the word blessing in this context maybe still leaves some ambiguity for us. Some of our our Bible translations have gone to translating this happy. Happy are the poor in spirit because of this or that. And while I think there's some appropriate application in that, and and that's fine in some respects, uh, happy are those who mourn. You know, there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Still, I think we're a little bit lacking in what it is. Uh, It's possible that uh, a great way of thinking about blessed is like applauded or rewarded, right? Um, that, that God applauds those, God re- rewards those that are poor in spirit. And by the way, what is this poor in spirit referring to? Uh, what, what is this poverty that it speaks of? I think he speaks here uh, that, that God blesses, God applauds, God rewards those that recognize their need for him. To be poor in spirit, to recognize our own frailty and our sin, and to call out to God, recognizing our need for him. And he said, these people will be blessed. He said, blessed are those who mourn, because from God comes comfort. In this kingdom, as people mourn, God gives comfort. He says, blessed are the meek, awarded or applauded are those who are meek. 
And again, I think our translation leaves us lacking. Uh, Jesus was called meek, yet when we hear the word here, we probably think of weak, right? That's probably the closest association that comes to mind when we hear the word meek. But listen to this. The Greek word that's translated here uh, in in English as meek uh, was the same word that they used of war horses in the time. Now, you wouldn't call a war horse weak, right? Uh, they, they cover immense amounts of ground in a moment, and yet a war horse also had the ability to stand still and submissive at the command of his rider. Meek, more appropriately, means, um, or, or the word, the Greek word used here, means power under control power under control. It sheds maybe for us a little bit different light. It's not speaking about weakness, but Jesus was described as meek, as someone who had vast power, but in control and under the submission of his father, right? So, so it says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. It says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled those who long after what is good, what is righteous, what is of God, that is a quench that can be filled in this kingdom that Jesus begins to describe. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. It's a reciprocal thing that as we live merciful lives, we receive mercy, and the mercy we've received uh, propels us to be merciful in the lives of others. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. We live in a world that needs a little more peace. A few more peacemakers amongst us. And that's the lifestyle of the children of God. He said, blessed blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Blessed are you when people insult you or persecute you falsely because of me. They did the same to the prophets, but the kingdom of God belongs to these types. As we listen to this, we hear a very humble, a very quiet description of the people who would be blessed by God, right? And sometimes, uh, I think in in our context, we listen to this and we say, I just don't get it. Do Do I just need to be less fortunate or... Like, what, what's going on? Why do, why do the descriptions seem so meager of those that would be blessed by God? And I think there's a very particular reason that Jesus spoke these words in this moment. Remember the crowds that had been following him. They were the people suffering from seizures or severe pain, of demon possession, of paralysis. These are the people Jesus has been engaging, and they come to him broken, the walking wounded following Jesus in this remote region. He's not in the temple. He's not in Jerusalem. He's not amongst the elites. But the people that are following him, the hurt, the broken, the needy. And so Jesus sits down at their feet. And here's what's running through their head culturally, logically. Logically, they're saying, the gods or God must not be pleased with me that I'm suffering in such ways. Here's what religion has said to them. It says that the reason you're suffering is because you have sinned. And so packed on top of all their pain and suffering is the guilt. 
the, the accusation that this is your own fault, right? You brought this on yourself. And can you picture these broken, wounded, marginalized people pushed to the edges of society seeing this rabbi sit down and start with these words, blessed are those who know their need for God. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who keep power in control. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, the peacemakers. These are people that can access those things, right? These are people that can hear that message. Jesus says, religion has told you that you're, you're cursed because of your sin." You ask the question if God is angry with you or has abandoned you, but Jesus says to you, in your weakness, you are strong. God brings blessing in this kingdom upon the greatest and the least. Unlike the societal norms in which the most beautiful, the most powerful, the most wealthy will gain all the prestige, all the honor, all the applause and awards, right? Those are the people that gain them in the first century and still today, Jesus sits at the feet of broken, ordinary people and says, you are blessed by God, even in your brokenness, even in your hurt, even in your weakness, flow the blessings of a God that loves you. These are transformative words in Israel, in the lives of these people, and I pray that they are in our lives too because we too live in that culture that applauds and awards the most beautiful and the richest and the best at this or that. And Jesus says to ordinary people, be blessed in this kingdom because God loves power under control. He loves peacemakers and blesses them. He loves those who are persecuted for his sake, and God brings blessing in the lives of them. Now, quite often as we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount, or if if, uh, we were looking in our Bible, we'd see a break and uh, the next passage with the little title that the uh, curators wrote in on Salt and Light, and we'd, we'd stop right there, and this would be its own thing, the Beatitudes. But I believe the next section connects directly to the conversation that he's been having. He sits down at their feet, and he said, hey, I know you're questioning God's role in this. I know you're questioning your value and your worth, but you are worthy of the blessings of God in this kingdom. And then he goes on to say this to those same broken, meek, and humble people. In verse 13, he says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. It is okay if you're like, I don't know what the heck that means. That is totally okay if that just does not connect. You see, because we think of salt in terms of seasoning, adding flavor, bringing the flavors out of food. That's how we think of salt. But he's speaking to a culture that used salt much, much differently. Right? These are fishermen many of them that are following him right here in Galilee. And they know that as they bring back a big catch of fish, it will immediately begin to decay and rot bacteria. They wouldn't know it by that term, but you and I know that. Uh, That bacteria begins to grow, that rot begins to set in. The moment these fish have died and are out of the water, they didn't have a deep freezer in their garage like you and I. Excuse me. Uh, So salt was the preservative. 
Salt was the, the active ingredient in their lives that, that, that uh, um, did away with the bacteria that wanted to destroy, the decay that wanted to ruin. Salt was a preservative in the life of these first century, century Israelite people. And, and, and so we read in here, Jesus say these words, you are the salt of the earth. You are the preservative that fights off the decay that, that, that is rampant. The decay that threatens this world. You are the salt. You are the preservative. And again, his audience, broken, humble, marginalized people, he says, no, you are the salt of the earth. And quite often, in our, again, in our Western culture, we're going to read this individualistically and we're going to say, oh, so we could lose our salvation if we're not being proper salt. But this is not a salvation, this is not a judgment passage. He's speaking collectively to this crowd. Hear this through the lens of Israel and hear this through the lens of the church that Jesus is instituting. He's saying, you, the church, are the salt of the earth. You are what fights off decay. You are what preserves and cares for this world that it can be used for its proper purpose. That's the message that Jesus speaks. And it connects directly to what he said about those that are blessed by his Father. Even though you are broken, even though you are humble, even though you are weak and hurting, God is blessing you, but further God is using you. That in your current state, you are that preservative, preventing decay, bringing goodness into this world around you. And he finishes, we'll finish in verse 14 through 16 here. Uh, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Ne- neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. He says the invitation is to to each of these people. He says the invitation is to each and every person. You are a light. It's an invitation to be broken yet used powerfully by God. The source of the light is is not theirs. It's not that they are so beautiful in their sick state. It's not that they are so beautiful in their stinky clothes from fishing the day before. It's It's not that they radiate some remarkable light. But the promise of this passage is found in the light that is Jesus, in the light that God places inside of us. That spreads throughout the world. He says, he says, a light's not designed to be hidden, nor can a lit city on top of a hill be missed. He says, you, the church, you, Israel, as he's speaking in this context, are a light in the world that is meant to shine right. And the extent to which we'll shine individually the extent to which we'll shine as a church, the extent to which the church will shine globally is dependent upon the transformational work that God is doing in us, individually, collectively, the transformational work. This alternative kingdom that he described in the Beatitudes, 
a kingdom in which people recognize their need for God. They find comfort in seasons of mourning. Power is held within control. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is light in the world. This is preservatives that allow the world to avoid the decay that threatens uh, to be merciful, to be pure in heart, to be peacemakers. This is that salt that preserves to stand up under right, uh, under um, to seek righteousness, to stand up under persecution, knowing that the reward is great. These are things that are salt and light in the world. So today we're we're invited, quite naturally, from Jesus' teaching here, to be salt and light in the world. But what does it look like? I mean, how does it play out practically? What what really does it entail is a, is a very valid question. I find that often in our attempt to be salt or light in this world, uh, we find ourselves in one of three categories. Uh, we either hide, we strive, or, or we thrive in it. One of the three, hide, strive, or thrive. Now, the hiding probably uh, is pretty ex- is self-explanatory. We know what it's like to feel intimidated to confess our Christian beliefs amongst people in our workplace who likely won't invite us to their Christmas party or whatever. They'll assume all sorts of things about us if they knew we were followers of Jesus, and it's uncomfortable. So often we find ourselves as the salt and the light of the world, doing exactly what he said a candle is not designed for, but hiding, but, but covering that up. And, and hiding that goodness that God intends to demonstrate through us in this world. But then there's those of us that strive, those of us that, that just work really hard to, to pound Jesus into every person we see, right? It's not bad to talk about Jesus. It's not bad to slip him into conversations. But you know what I mean by strive? When we take it to this level where we push people away in our lives, and then there's those that thrive, those, uh, those that choose to allow their light to shine brightly, demonstrated in loving ways amongst their friends and co-workers, those that really thrive in this ability to, to strive for peace, to strive um, uh, for, for all of these things that Jesus mentioned, who strive to keep check their power, keep it in control, who strive to be pure and merciful to people around them, right? This is when we begin to thrive in this calling to be salt and light. I heard a church planner from Canada speaking on the subject of, of, um, of kind of this how do we live out this role. And he told this story of as he and his wife moved to Canada, she was still in school at the time. And so she was making all sorts of friends and coming home, telling about these conversations she was having with people and her excitement about all these relationships. But he, ironically, the extrovert of the two of them, found himself full-time trying to start this church, he found himself really lacking in relationships and unable to know exactly how to connect with people. And he found himself kind of jealous of his wife's opportunities and the conversation she was having. And so he began to push towards this striving category, right? He began to push saying, well, did you tell him about Jesus? Did you slip Jesus into that conversation? And she began to do that. And a friend of hers, Amy, shortly later, Shortly after, he began pushing. 
she came to her and she said, hey, um, I don't believe what you believe. And if this needs to continue, then I don't think this friendship can continue. Okay? That's beautifully honest. Uh, that's really open-handed and, and remarkable that Amy was able to respond in that way. So uh, this this church uh, this this church planning gal she um, so she she takes it a notch back. She chooses to live in relationship with Amy, and sometime later, as her first child was born, the only other person in the room that day was this gal Amy, who had become a dear dear friend. A year after that, when Amy was diagnosed with leukemia, she called on them. And she said, will you, will you pray over me like we prayed over your child that day your child was born? And as Amy began her spiritual journey, uh, as she began to ask questions, they now had this platform in which to talk openly and honestly about their faith. They'd never hidden it, but they'd chosen not to push it. And they'd built a relationship in which Amy felt comfortable beginning the spiritual journey together with them. So that's what I pray for us today, that we can be those that thrive as the salt and light of the earth, that where we see brokenness and decay, that we act as that salt, preserving the goodness that God has created, preserving the things that he's done, that we act as peacemakers, that we act mercifully in the lives of others, that we check our power, but instead in humility recognize our need for God. And that, friends, is the light of the world, that God designed us to shine for his glory, for his, <clears throat> for his sake. My prayer today is that we, we leave this place um, just the same as we were. Right? In that my ailments and my concerns and the things that I'm facing in life may be just the same. But, but like the people that heard Jesus 2,000 years ago speak these words, that we hear the blessing of God in the life of ordinary people with their own concerns and problems and struggles, but that we thrive in demonstrating the blessings and love that God has given us that we begin to reciprocate them in the world around us, that we shine bright in a remarkable way that the world can see God is good and God is loving to the most, to the least. God sees equality. God loves deeply and blesses his people. The people would see in our lives God's goodness. Let's pray about that. Father God, we thank you for this day and we thank you for this time. We thank you for an opportunity to, um, to explore the words of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that, that they've been recorded for us, that we, can, uh, that we can go deep, that we can ask hard questions of them, that we can learn from them. Father, as countercultural as it is to check our power, or to recognize our need for you or anything else as countercultural as it is to be pure in heart or to make peace um, when confronted. Father, help us to be those people. And as we learn to live more into your kingdom that is here and that is coming, Father, I pray that you will 
allow us to be lights. More perfectly, Father, that your light would shine out of us, that people can see your love and your goodness. Father, we thank you for that invitation and pray that you will help us to live into it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.